in a series on the book of James, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament called Faith That Works, and we're in James chapter 4. I'll read it aloud. It'll be on the screen so you can follow along. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. Well, we're in a series, and we're calling that series Faith That Works, and we're exploring through the letter of James in the New Testament uh, how we might have the kind of faith that Jesus means for us to have. And James here in his book is trying to help us uh, describe and understand and grasp what it looks like. And what it looks like is, when we put it into practice, is that we become wise people. Now, if, if there's a faith that works in that sense, then that means there's also a faith that doesn't work, or it's a faith that is unwise. And if you've been keeping track with us through this series, you've been reading the letter of James, you know that what James means by that is that's the kind of faith that exists as an idea and not as a reality, or maybe even as a theology or a doctrine or a dogma and not an actual life. Now, you need to pause and understand that James is not saying to us that ideas and doctrines and theology don't matter. He's not saying they're not important. He's just saying if that's all that you have is a set of ideas or a set of doctrines or a theology, then you don't actually have faith. So we're, we're trying to figure out how we might have faith that works, uh, and James will tell us that the faith that works is the kind that you put into practice that you apply. Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago, I said, listen, if you wanted to transform your life, if you're trying to figure out how might I go in a different direction and how might I follow Jesus, uh, that where you might start is you might go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus, the core teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God and how to live in it. And you might go to Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7 and then just take those, those, those uh, concepts, those ideas, those realities and put them into practice in your life. And if you were to do that for the next 60 days, and psychologists tell us it takes 30 days to develop a habit, and then about another 30 days to cement it, if you were to every day just go to some of the words of Jesus, so we could, for instance, you could go to uh, what we know as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you started your day and you said, uh, today, I don't know how you start your day, I started reading the Psalms and praying, I hope you do something similar to that. You start and you say, today, uh, Lord, I want to I treat the people that I encounter today 
the way I would want them to treat me. And then at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow, you review the day. How did that go? Did I do okay on that? How did that, how did that work, Lord? And then if you, each week you met with the people in your group and you talked about it and you were doing it together, I promise you that in 60 days you would have a different life. <laughs> then go back and then find out what Jesus said about forgiveness and do that for 60 days. And then go back and find out what Jesus said about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. It transformed your life. Absolutely radically change your life. And that's what James is trying to say to us, is that you can transform your life, but you have to do what Jesus says. Now today, uh, the title of the message today is uh, a warning to the rich. A warning to the rich. Now I, I, you need to know that that, uh, that actual wording there is from the heading. Now you, you may or may not know this, but uh, in the New Testament, there are headings that are listed. Those were not in the original text. Those were added by the folks who translated that particular passage. And, and this passage here, uh, the heading there is warning to the rich. And when I was putting this series together, I thought, oh, okay, that's going to be, you know, that's like a clickbaity kind of title. People are going to go, ooh, okay, I'm going to see what said to the rich people. And, but here's what I realized. It would be far too easy for you and I, if that's all this message is about, to just dismiss it and say, you know what, that's for, those, that's for those wealthy people. I'm not one of those wealthy people. And so excuse ourselves from having to do anything with what James says to us here. And so then this text could then just function like a get them text for those selfish, indulgent, crazy rich people, right? And, and that would mean then you don't have to do anything with it and you can just kind of gloat. Ah, see. But James would say to us, not so fast. And what James gives us here in this text is an attitude of the heart that you and I are susceptible to maybe more than any society in human history. Now, James gives us this phrase. It starts right here with this, this kind of challenge, this challenging word. It's in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, and then again in chapter 5, verse 1. And he says there in the New International Translation that we read, now listen. That's an ancient Semitic way of giving a serious rebuke, or in the words of Jesus saying, woe unto you. I don't know what the, the modern version of that might be, but it might be like, hey, listen here, buddy. <laughs> you know, when somebody starts with that, you go, okay, well, I, I probably need to lean in and listen to that. And James here is rebuking something specific that people are doing. Now, to back away from the text for a second, you've got to remember that James is writing so that people will be wise, so that you could live a wise life. And in the Bible, the opposite of wise is not dumb, it's a fool. Uh, the the non-wise person is a fool. Now, you could reach all the way back to the other wisdom literature. James functions as a, a type of wisdom literature in the New Testament. You could reach back to the Old Testament, to the book of Proverbs, and what you would find there when you understand and read what the Proverbs says about not being a fool is a fool is a person who has culpable blindness to reality that leads to destructive choices. In other words, this is a person who chooses not to see how things actually are. And because they're so out of touch with reality, it leads to devastating choices. And so James is zeroing in on a particular kind of foolishness. So let me give it to you under four headings, and then we'll look at them. One, James shows us how serious the issue is. Then James shows us the reasons that it's an issue. Then he shows us what can make it worse and what can make it better. Let's look at those four things. Shows us what a serious issue 
we're up against. So what is it that James is condemning? Well, if you go to verse 13 in chapter 4, he says that, you know, now listen to you say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. On the surface, it seems like James is condemning what you and I would call strategic planning. I mean, he's, he's got a, 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 a place to go, a specific city. There's a, a time frame. You know, it's in a year. There's a revenue target that he's trying to hit in a year to be profitable. But the problem is, is that James cannot be condemning what you and I would call strategic planning. Here's why. James is drawing on all of the wisdom literature, and if you go to the book of Proverbs, what you would discover is that the book of Proverbs would tell you that it is foolish to not plan. Or you could go to Luke chapter 14, where Jesus tells a famous parable about a man who sets out to build something, and because he doesn't have a budget, he doesn't finish the, finish the job, and, and a general who goes to war, but he doesn't make sure that the supply lines work, and he's got enough troops, and he can win the battle. And Jesus says that a lack of planning is foolishness. So James can't be saying, don't strategic plan. What James is talking about is an attitude of our heart around why we plan. Now you'd find it in verse 16. Here's how he says it. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Now that plan, James says, is a boast. Now in the Bible, uh, boasting is it's an important theological and practical theme. We're told repeatedly that we're not to boast. We're warned about not boasting. Why, why, why that? Well, a boast that James is using as his example to us, a boast is, uh, comes from a ritual of warfare. Now, you've seen those movies, haven't you, that depict ancient battles and the two troops are lined up, you know, the two armies are lined up against each other. And before they go to battle, the general will come out on his horse or the king or whoever happens to be the leader, and they'll, they'll make all the, they'll, they'll say, tomorrow we will feast inside those walls. <laughs> William Wallace, freedom, you know. Uh, we will cut through them like butter. You know, we, we will do all this. Why, why does the leader make that boast? Why do they boast? Well, how do you get a bunch of men to walk willingly into certain death. I mean, have you seen those battles? I mean, I, I don't know what the, the numbers would be, but I mean, do half of the people make it out of that battle? And how in the world do you get someone excited to walk into their death? How do you give them confidence in the face of the foe? You use a boast. And so the Bible uses this as a, a spiritual category. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah says it in Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Let, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. Now, God forbids people boasting in riches and might and strength. Why? Well, think about you for a second. Your boast is what gives you confidence to face life. So what is it that you use as your deepest source of confidence? When you have to get up, and you've got to face challenges, and you've got to charge into the battle of, that is your life, what is it that you tell yourself? How do you work yourself up? What is your boast? And all of us, on one level, boast in something besides the Lord. You know, if, if I have this, if I do that, 
then I can face what's coming at me. We, we have a deep confidence in something besides the Lord. And James here is talking to us about a particular form of this boast. And I'm going to give it a name here in just a minute. But he's talking to us about a disposition of our heart that thinks, if I can just plan, if I can do my due diligence, if I can research and strategize, it, once I do all of that, then I can make my plans and I can think it out. And then now I can be in control of my future. It, it's what uh, Tim Keller calls, let me give it a name, the life control illusion. The life control illusion. And it kind of goes like this. It's, uh, it's an if-then coding of the human heart. It goes like this. If I do my due diligence, if I plan, if I strategize, then I can control my destiny and my future. And now James is trying to get us to see the opposite of this, that we would say, listen, what happens in very large part is beyond my control. And if there are any accomplishments that I have in life, if there are any comforts that come to me or success that's mine, it's only because of divine help. And James is saying that there are enough people that have this problem of the life control illusion that he writes about it. And it's a good thing for us because I don't know if, if there's ever been a culture where this particular form of foolishness is more prevalent. Think about every movie that you see and what you are told from the time you are little in elementary school. You know the phrase, right? You can be whatever you want to be. <laughs> uh, if, you are, if you're on Instagram and you follow an Instagram influencer, I promise you they'll put up some quote saying, it's all in your power. There's a very famous sermon, it was uh, maybe 100 or so years ago, called Acres of Diamonds. Someone reappropriated it, so if you Google it, you'll find this book someone wrote. They stole it. Uh, but it's from about 100 years ago, and it's this kind of story, uh, and it's about this guy who is looking for diamonds, and he goes to someone, and the person tells him where he can find diamonds, and so this man leaves his home, and he goes out, and he looks everywhere, and he never finds the diamonds, and he dies abjectly poor only to find out that someone digs down right where he lived and there were all of the diamonds he could have ever wanted. And, and, and Acres of Diamonds started, was many point to it as the start of the self-help movement because it said what we all believe as Americans. It's all within you. You can make this work. You've got everything at your disposal that you need. You can make this happen. And here's what James is trying to say to us. That Painting of the heart that way is out of touch with reality. Do you remember at the end of Back to the Future, the movies? Have you seen the Back to the Future movies? And, and Doc Brown uh, says to Marty McFly, at the end of the bleed character, uh, as he's going away, he says, I'll, qu I'll quote it for you, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. You know, and we all sit there and we all watch and everybody just goes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And, and the reason we go, yeah, that's right. And the reason those were blockbuster movies is because we're Americans. We believe that. We've been taught that from the time we were little. That, and the message is, you know, your future is whatever you make it. Not even your future. The future is whatever you make it. I uh, read a lot of books by a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. He writes, he's a really fascinating writer. He does this, all this research and tries to tease out these kinds of things we all assume are, are, are true, and he tries to explain why, and he, all this research. And 
One of his books is called Outliers. And and Outliers, uh, he studied these people who were massively successful. And he said, why is it, this was his thesis going, and he said, why is it that some people are more successful than other people? Now, we'd probably answer that question as Americans. Well, they work harder. And so he went and he studied people like Bill Gates, and he studied the Beatles. It's a fascinating, fascinating book with all kinds of research. And here's what he concluded. He said, yeah, their hard work had something to do with it, but in every one of those instances, and he unpacks their, their past and their history, he says there were circumstances, and there were relationships, and there were connections, and there were things that lined up. There were upbringing, and timing, and opportunities that all lined up for them just at the right possible moments for them to become a success. And, and he found that we're not in control of all these things we think that we're in control of, and it's not our hard work that makes us a success. It's a piece of the, the puzzle, but it does not de- describe and explain why we're a success. And James says, listen, if you believe, and we do as Americans, that the future is whatever you make of it, you're a fool. Now, that's not an insult. That's a fact. The, the, the Bible is trying to say to us, listen, if that's how you see the world, then you are out of touch with reality, with how things actually work, and you will make all kinds of destructive decisions. The life control illusion, that's the issue. Now, then he shows us the reasons that it's an issue. Why, why is it that we're so out of touch with reality? And James gives us two reasons. In verse 14, he says the first reason is you just don't know. You don't know even what tomorrow will happen for you. And there's this kind of paradox because we don't know. It can lead to both overconfidence on the one hand and anxiety on the other. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, think about this, overconfidence. So in, do you remember in 2008, those of you who were paying attention in 2008, uh, and the market collapsed and uh, you know, real estate values fell just plummeted, and there were trillions of dollars in real estate value that were lost. And, and when they went to the designers of the models, in fact, they made a movie about it, um, and, and they, they went to the designers of the models, and they said, well, what happened? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we had great models. They were able to predict what would happen, and, but this or that happened. And this and that has never happened before. In fact, this and that has never happened in all the time we've been keeping records. And because this and that happened, how could we have known? Our models didn't account for it because we didn't know. That's exactly what James is saying. You don't know, therefore you become overconfident. And if you think you know, you make destructively bad choices because of overconfidence. Then, paradoxically, you can have a lot of anxiety because you think that you know, so it creates anxiety and underconfidence. Why? You worry. What's, well, what's worry? Worry is you saying to yourself, well, I know how my life ought to go, and I'm afraid that it's not going there, and I don't know what to do about it, so I'm worried. Worry assumes that you can know, and you don't. I was uh, on staff at a church in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and for a number of years, about, about a decade plus, I was on staff as a pastor on staff, and, and I knew something was, was changing, and I wasn't quite sure, and I'd talked with the, the lead pastor and the executive pastor of the church that I was on staff, and we, we talked about it, and something was, something was bubbling up, and I wasn't quite sure what was next, and I thought, maybe I'm not supposed to be in ministry anymore. I didn't, I didn't quite know. And uh, I, I got wind of an opportunity 
um, at one of our uh, colleges and universities. So if, if you're part of the Church of the Nazarene, you know that we operate eight different colleges and universities in North America. And one of them, not the one we're attached to, but one of them, I found out that there was an opening for the chaplain at that particular university. And I knew the president, and I'd been friends with the president previously. And, and uh, so I reached out, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this job. I, I think, you know, I'd, and he said, well, here's, here's, the, here's the process, and you got to write all this, this thing. And so I went online, I found what I had to write, this, and I wrote this whole thing. And, and I looked at the process, and it was this multi-step process, and I thought, yeah, that's probably not going to happen, you know, but maybe, maybe, who knows. And so I, I sent it off, and uh, about two days later, I got a, a message back, and they said, we want you to come and interview. And I thought, well, this is not the process. And I, when I got there, they said, well, you, your writing was so far above everybody else's that we just had to bring you in. Okay, all right, great. Well, maybe God's opening this door. And so uh, I, I went and I met with the president. We talked for four hours and about all these things. And I had all these ideas and I was going to do this and then I was going to do that and then this was going to happen and then that was going to happen. And I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. Until I got a phone call from the president who said, you know, we, we decided we're going to go with somebody else. And I said, well, who, who is that person? He named that person. And, and I knew the president's, who some of his friends were, and it's a, a friend of his from the time he was in college. And I thought, why in the world do you even bother bringing me out here? This is a waste of my time and yours, right? But I was very honestly pretty devastated. I thought this was the next thing. I, I thought, for sure, this is what I'm to do next. This makes sense to me. I, I know what's supposed to happen next in my life. And I was devastated. If I'd known James 4, I could have applied it at that moment and gone and said, you know what, I'm kind of stupid and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if that's the best next step for me. I don't know if I'm, I'm supposed to do this. And, and you don't know either. So both overconfidence and anxiety come, can come from thinking, I know. <laughs> I know. And, and you, you, have, you develop this out-of-touch-with-reality assumption that you know enough to control through your planning and hard work, but you don't, and you can't. And then James gives us the second reason. He says the second reason it's an issue is, is that you, you, don't, you don't control things. In verse 15, he says, uh, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In, in other words, every this and every that only happens if the Lord wills. Now, this is a major theme all the way throughout the scriptures. Theologians call this the sovereignty of God. God is the sovereign. He is the king. So how do we understand what it is that God does? And, and most of us fall, um, usually unconsciously, on one extreme uh, of understanding the sovereignty of God or the other. And, and on, on one hand, it's the idea that God is in control of everything and everything is part of a master plan. And so that's one side. And then the other side is, but it's just my choices that matter. That's the thing that really matters. And so if, if we believe that God is in control, then what can happen is that you can think that everything is fixed. And so it doesn't matter what I do really. Why in the world would I pray? I've had many conversations with people who are trying to understand prayer, and, and they see prayer as this lever that you pull to get God to do something, which is not the main purpose of prayer. It's for closeness and intimacy with God, but, but they think it's this lever that you pull, and they think, well, if I'm pulling this lever and God knows what's going to happen when I pull this lever, why do I even bother in the first place? I'm just going to stop praying. That's, that's one side of it. Or the other side of it is that you say, well, what I do matters in the end. And that's the thing that I have, to, I have to count on. I can make the future what I want. The future is whatever I want it to be. But the Bible doesn't 
struggle with our extremes and, and suggest that it's both and. Now, let me give you two examples. This is all the way through the Bible, but let me give you two examples of this. Um, one comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 31. This is what the writer of the Proverbs says. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. In other words, I can prepare, and I need to prepare, and I need to train, and I need to think about what's going to happen, and I need to get ready for what's going to happen, and I need to do everything in my power to arrange things so the outcome I'm hoping for uh, will happen. But, the writer says, victory belongs, uh, rests with the Lord. So, why? Well, it's what the great theologian Mike Tyson said. (laughs) Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) I can be ready. In other words, I can be ready, but I can't control the outcome. I'll give you another example. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost, famous sermon. And he's talking about uh, what we did with Jesus. And he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. See, there's God's in charge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's my choices. Now, notice, Peter doesn't say, well, this has only happened because of the foreknowledge and deliberate planning of God. And, and I mean, I know you killed him, uh, but you couldn't help it. It was predetermined. And if you hadn't done it, someone else would have done it. I mean, it was going to happen, so it might as well have been you. <laughs> he didn't say that. And he also doesn't say, well... Only what you did mattered, and so the angels are up in heaven biting their nails thinking, oh my word, is Jesus going to die on the cross for the sins of all mankind, or what's going to happen? And, 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 and man, it's a really good thing you came along and killed him. No, Peter says that it's both, that God absolutely and infallibly works out his sovereign will in wise, though often inscrutable ways, but at the same time, all of your choices you are responsible for, they're not forced on you, they matter, and you are accountable for them. Both and. And unless you put those two things together, you'll live unwisely because our tendency is on the one hand to say, well, it doesn't matter. So we live a passive and indifferent life and we stop caring. Or we embrace the life control illusion. I can do it. I can be anything I want to be. And when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're taking the place of God and you are not qualified for the job. Have you ever been in a job where you're not qualified? It just doesn't fit. And so the Bible is saying your choices absolutely matter, and yet ultimately you are not in control of what happens. God is. Now, what can make it worse? Well, when you read this passage, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 17, and then you compare it with chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, Um, James is not immediately making it better. In fact, he's telling us what can make it worse. And it seems like these are two different subjects, but they're not. Uh, It's like this. The attitude, the disposition of the heart, the life control illusion that we embrace that James describes in verse 13 to 17, that illusion that can control our life leads to the kind of people that are depicted in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Or let let me give that to you in a different way. How do you know if you have the life control illusion or if you believe everything good in your life is a gift from God? How how do you know? Well, James says, here's the acid test. It's how you spend and use your money. 
Now, why? Well, again, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a coding, it's an if-then coding of the human heart. If you believe that your success, that where you are today is because of forces beyond your control, that there's divine control of your life and everything you have is the gift of God, if, if those things are true, then you take your assets and you won't treat them as all yours because you realize this is a gift. Yeah, I worked hard, but it's a gift that I was able to work hard in the first place. And then that makes you a radically generous person with your assets. But what happens if you have the life control illusion? And Americans, we have this drilled into us by popular culture and education. What if you have the life control illusion and you have success? That's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Because then what happens is you treat everything that comes to you as absolutely yours. When you peel back chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, you find two things. Number one, there are ruthless business practices. So there are business owners who are underpaying their workers and not sharing the profits with them because they don't see the profits as belonging to the workers or to the community in any way. They see it as belonging to them. I worked hard. I sacrificed. I did all the things to make this company possible. This is mine. I own all of this. And then never mind that the workers are the one who made all that possible, did all the work. You're self-indulgent, James says. And in verse 5 and 6, he has this, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. In other words, you spend more on yourself than's right. You spend more on your home and on your vacation and on your clothes. Why? You think that it's yours. And then the most frightening part of chapter 5, verse 1 to 6 is is if you meet with some success in life and you have the life control illusion, James says that it hollows you out on the inside. Verse 3, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. He's talking about what material goods do to the soul. Now listen, James is not saying there's anything wrong with being rich. If you have tremendous assets and you don't have the life control illusion and you're under the leadership of Jesus Christ, you're an incredible force for good in the world. But if you have the life control illusion, then what you think is, I'm the reason I have all this. And when success comes, it eats you out from the inside and spiritually makes you into a fool. If you go back to the book of Proverbs, you find that the essence of foolishness is to be wise in your own eyes. And so if you get... The life, you get some success and you have the life control illusion, then this, this is what happens is you start to say, well, I did this, I mastered this, I'm good at this, I was successful in this area of my life, I must be successful in every area of life. In fact, if you would just put me in charge and if you would just take my ideas about what ought to happen in this, this area, I don't know anything about, but because I was successful over here, I'm amazing over here too, I, then I'll make it work the way I made it work over here because I'm amazing. And, and so if I'm smarter in this area, I must be smarter in every area. And if I could just get control of it, then I can make a success out of it. There was a scientist uh, recently who, uh, because of his scientific discoveries, um, was also very, very financially successful. And for all of his life, he had no use, no use for God. And uh, later in his life, he started to, not recently, uh, explore. Maybe, maybe there is something to God. And what he said, so it so poignantly illustrates this. I just want you to hear his words. Here's, here's what he said. He said, all my life, I didn't feel much need 
for God. I felt in charge and in control. I was successful at work. I was successful in business. I thought it would be the same with my children. Yet my children accuse me now of trying to control their lives like I controlled the rest of my life, and they're right. I did try, but it backfired completely. I've completely lost my kids. I have no relationship with them, and they've shown me that I'm not really in control, at least not over the things that matter the most. That's why the question of whether or not there is a God has started to matter to me. His success tied to the life control illusion ate away at him from the inside. And he had this swagger and arrogance in every area of life, not recognizing that the success he had was a gift from God. And so what makes it worse is success. Now, what makes it better? Well, James hints at it, and it's two things. I'll give you two phrases. You have to, one, recognize the life of breath, and then you have to embrace the breath of life, the life of breath, the breath of life. Here's what John, uh, James says. He says this brutal reality in verse 14. He says, what, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. When you think you're in control, in other words, James says, you need to pause and recognize how temporary your life is. What is your life? It's nothing more than a mist. I I prayed last night, just forgive me, Lord. I prayed last night, Lord, if it would be possible for a fog to cover all of Wichita tomorrow morning as people drive into church. (laughs) And then as I was driving in, there was a fog. I'm like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? What? I'll drive back down Kellogg. That fog's already gone. It was just here for a little bit. Or maybe you could think about yourself in terms of, you know, the winter's coming and you're going to go outside and you're going to breathe. And what are you going to see? You're going to see the life of breath. (laughs) And it's going to be burned away in a few seconds. And, And James is saying, you're out of touch with reality unless you realize that you are like that. And this world is like that. It's that temporary. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7, he's writing about all these different scenarios in life, and he's trying to impress on people, don't take it so seriously. And then he gives this phrase in verse 31. He says, for this world in its present form, and it's the same image he's evoking, is passing away. Now, meditate on that with me for just a second. The world is passing away. You just listen to any scientist and they will tell you that eventually the sun will burn out, which means this planet will be cold and there will be no life. And that means that absolutely everything you do will be utterly forgotten. There will be nothing that you have done that will make any lasting difference and it won't matter if you've been a genocidal maniac or the greatest humanitarian of your generation. In the end, nothing you do has, will have made any lasting difference and there will be no one around to even remember what you contributed to the world. I could take you to, the, I could take you to the, the cemeteries in the city and you could go to names that in their day they were known by everybody and, and you wouldn't know who they are. Who's that? Now that means that unless there is a God and eternity that nothing that you are doing right now will have any lasting meaning. Why? Because this world is passing away. 
And in the same way, you are personally passing away. If you cooked a chicken today and you go to your kitchen and you take it out of the oven and you set it on the counter, you know what's, what's immediately happening to it. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is tending toward entropy. It's winding down. And if you let it sit there for two hours, it'll be cold. If you let it sit there for two days, it'll be full of maggots. And, and you have to recognize that that's also happening to you and me. Now, I know we have things like the YMCA. <laughs> I know we've got nutrition. I know you can go eat some kale after, at lunch today and you think that's going to extend your life. I don't think it is. It might... we, we have makeup. You know, I can see. <laughs> and, and all that points out is that you and I are vanishing. And if you have a family and, and it's full of young kids and some of you have let's way in the rearview mirror, but if you still have a family of young kids and you sit around the table, I still sit around the table with my kids and I look at them and I feel so good. It just feels so full and life feels so rich. And, and yet at the same time, I recognize that the day is coming when only one of us sitting around this table and one of us will be left having buried everybody else around the table. And no amount of strategic planning and no amount of due diligence and no amount of risk management and no amount of hard work is going to stop it. So what are we supposed to be thinking about right now? Like, if only I could get to a size eight. If only I had this much money. If only I could go there. If only I could have that experience. And James is trying to say, well, what, if, what could you do that would last for five billion years from now? What could you put into your soul, into the soul of other people that would last five billion years from now. And, and the, the answer to that is the breath of life. Do, do you know the scene in John chapter 20 when Jesus sees his disciples? And it's this really odd kind of thing that happens. Jesus sees his disciples and, and the, the writer John says, and he breathed on them. In other words, he puts something into them that will never end, that's eternal, that is not wasting away. Maybe you know that the word for breath in both Hebrew and Greek that the Old and New Testament are written in is the same word for spirit. And so this is how Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He says, though we are, therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, it's that same image, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So then what you have to do is you have to read James 4, like what my kids used to call opposite day. When they were little, they would say, today's opposite day, Dad. I'd say, okay. And I said, okay, so everything I say, it's the opposite. Okay. Dad, you're the worst dad I've ever had in my entire life, and I don't like you at all. And I'd say, oh, thank you. <laughs> You kind of have to read James 4, like opposite day. You know, read the opposite. You know, we've left things undone that we should have done, and we've done things that we should not do. And in the words of the great confession that some churches read, there is no health in us. And so who is going to make up for our lack? Who's going to show us the way? Who's going to take us where we don't know how to go? Who can take us into a future that we're, we, to us is uncertain? Who can do that? Well, the person who has done all of those things that we should have done is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Who lived a life without any boasting or arrogance? Who made himself of no reputation? Who more than any other person said, if the Lord wills? (laughs) And he takes us into a future that's unknown to us if we go with him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And it's the Lord of this material universe. It's Jesus Christ who's in absolute control. And, and, and here's, the, here's, the, here's the gospel. is that Jesus, who is in absolute control, came and lost control of his life. He gave up control and he surrendered to the forces of chaos. And then he won. So that you would know everything's under control. And, and you would have the life control illusion exposed as the sham that it is. The, the sham power and authority. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians. And he says, and Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made, them a, made a, public spectacle, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, he beat defeat by being defeated. And how can you beat someone who's already lost everything? Willingly, you can't. And so you won't be able to take your mitts off of your life and admit that you have no control till you see that it's Jesus that's saving you, the eternal one who became mortal so us mortals could become eternal. Don't, don't you want to have that kind of boast, though? Like, look at what God has done with my life. Look, look, at, the, look at the gifts and the abilities he's given to me. Look at look what he's poured into our community that we can now give and serve our community. Don't, look, can we have that boast? Could that be our boast? We know the Lord. We don't know tomorrow, but we know who has tomorrow. Would you stand? I want to, invite, I want to pray for you. with me. Uh, Lord, we uh, hear this word from James, this warning. And we don't want to ignore it. We don't want to walk out of here today and go, ah, that was nothing. <laughs> we want to see what you've done for us on the cross. You willingly laid down. You, you willingly laid down your power. You took on the nature of a slave and you humbled yourself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so you now have the name that's above every name. So Lord, we see what you've done for us to show us the way. That it's okay on the other side because you're already there. So Lord, we want to go with you. We want to lay down our illusions. We want our resources to be at your disposal. We want to have the boast that you say we can boast, that we know you. So, Lord, we do that now. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, we always leave you with a blessing or a good word, and you'll see some folks here in the room holding out their hands, way of saying, oh, I'd like a good word. And if you're comfortable with that, great. You can receive this blessing as you go. If you're not, that's fine. You can still receive this blessing. You're sent now to know the God who already understands what's happening in your future because he's already there. You're sent to love that God, to love the people made in his image, to serve them in Jesus' name. Hug somebody, tell someone else that you love them. Thanks for joining us today. See you next week.